0: Hey, hey, hey. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to Stock Market Live. I'm Daniel Snyder, host over here at Seeking Alpha, and I am joined today by Austin Hankwitz.
1: How's it going, everybody? Austin Hankwitz here checking in. I might sound a little congested. It's because I am. I woke up Monday morning feeling like the bottom of a shoe. Good news, though, is the stock market's ripping today. We have a lot to talk about. In my health, aka being having a cold doesn't really matter when the stock market's green. So let's talk about it, Daniel. Let's jump into stock it, Stock market's open earnings.
0: every single day. Well, not every single day, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, we want to get into covering some earnings today before we get to our amazing guest that we have joining us today. I mean, this guy is a complete powerhouse in every sense of the word. I still play on words. You'll see what we're talking about. We have Michael Boy joining us later today in the episode to talk about everything energy and we have some people tuning in with us live today. Welcome to the show, everyone. So glad you're here. I see Dale. I see Greg. I see James. I see Lewis. I see all of you joining today. Thanks for tuning in. Just a reminder too, this is Stock Market Live. So what we're doing here is we're not only talking about what we're looking at, we're diving into charts. We're looking at getting you engaged. We want to engage with you. If you have questions, come up to the top of your mind while we're talking, while we're speaking with our guest who is the absolute know-all in the energy sector. I really encourage you guys to jump in with questions and we'll ask him right here, right now. And if you're listening on the podcast afterwards, we encourage you to join us live. There is registration links all over the place and you can jump in the following week live with us here on Stock Market Live. But let's get into it. Shall we, Awesome.
1: Let's do it, man. Let's do it. Want to kick things off with uh, Pinterest? You know, We saw Pinterest rip higher, I think it was 20-some percent yesterday, due to their earnings in line with expectations. I mean, as you know, the stock has sold off like crazy. They're one of those COVID pandemic darlings, right? I don't know about you, but whenever I was stuck at home, I was thinking, how can I redesign my place? If that's my bedroom, that's my living room. And where do I get that inspiration from? Pinterest? just like all the other 300 million people. Right. And so they were, they were, they were crushing it there. Obviously a lot of that, um, momentum had died down and, and their stock traded down a lot. And I even think Elliot, uh, management came through as a activist investor. To- what is
0: it? 20% now?
1: Um, it very well could be, I'm not positive on that specific number. I'd be very interested. Um, but what was cool is if you kind of look through their, uh, most recent earnings call, Um, they've kind of realized this, right? They've realized things have slowed down, but they want to fix the problem, right? They laid out a clear path to how they can begin um, specifically broadening their advertiser base, right? They make money through advertisements, Uh, a better product strategy uh, to boost that engagement. So whenever I'm popping on my Pinterest, I'm over here clicking stuff more, I'm liking it, I'm sharing it. I'm even doing their last thing here that they're excited for, making it a more shoppable app. I don't know about you, but I have indeed bought a few things on Pinterest. They've got a lot of cool little, I mean, it just, whenever I see Pinterest and these cool little images inside their app, it makes me feel like how, how just unoriginal I am, right? I've just got a desk with a monitor and a webcam. And some of these people have like, you know, posters and lamps and rugs and curtains and all these cool things. And Pinterest makes it so easy to buy those, And so um, really cool to see that they uh, absolutely crushed um, the, uh, the, the market yesterday. And, uh, yeah, definitely interested. Let me know if you have any insight on that Elliot, uh, position.
0: Yeah. So I was just trying to look it up and it's, it's my mistake. Pinterest stocks surged 20%. Right. Right, take, right. I was about to say 20% is a huge chunk of this company. I mean, the, the float. let me see if I can find the float real quick. Um, volume today alone is 9 million shares. Um, Oh, the flow is 663 million. So 20, 20% would obviously be a huge stake. But I mean, look, you were talking about Elliott Management. I mean, these guys are complete powerhouse in everything they do. I mean, they're we know them as active investors and they come in and they really find companies like this that you were talking about, right? Everyone is on Pinterest at some point, whether you're cooking, whether you're thinking about inspiration design for your interior design of your home, which, you know, the last few years with COVID where we were all stuck, everybody wanted to enjoy the place they lived in. And this was kind of the place where they went. So the thing that I love about this one specifically is it's a search engine, right? It's a search engine, just like Google. And if you're searching on that, then they are gathering that data and they're going to find ways to optimize that ad presence. Especially, you know, that's the big conversation that's happened over the last year and the upcoming years ahead is, you know, Google pushed back the removal of cookies from internet browsing, which will eventually hurt a lot of companies and they've got to figure it out. And I feel like Pinterest is already ahead of the game. And if not, then I could see easily them being acquired by another powerhouse, maybe Microsoft, for instance, integrating them with Microsoft just makes sense to me. Or Google, right? Google bought YouTube and YouTube yeah. was another search engine. Right? So it's kind of like the buy of the search engines because you get, you gather so much data here to then analyze that data and retarget those ads and become extremely profitable. So I, li- I like this one. I haven't looked too deep into it, but it makes sense to me.
1: And I mean, I'm not over here calling Pinterest a small company, but for 15 billion dollars, you don't think Microsoft or Google or you know one of these big trillion, multi-trillion dollar companies can just come up here and you know snag it for whatever? I mean, this that that's that's just a shrug off their oh, shoulders. Oh
0: man, you know what I just noticed, Josh? I was looking at this chart here that you just threw up. Thanks for get for getting this up. Look at that short interest, eight percent. Ooh. So obviously, right? Obviously you get a, a a news announcement like Elliott Management coming in and taking a stake, you're going to see some shorts starting to cover. So the question for me now is from a technical standpoint is how long does this continue to run because if you have shorts coming in to cover, you're going to have that relentless bid.
1: Yep. Yep. No, Josh, let's get that chart correct. off. What
0: else, what else you got for us? Awesome.
1: Well, up next is JetBlue, right? We saw JetBlue. Um, unfortunately, they were not so lucky. Their stock traded down some six percent yesterday. I believe the company reported a net loss uh, that was worse than expected. Um, however, I'm going to cut them some slack because they they had this big, like you know, we're going to be profitable in Q2 2022 uh, type mentality. Everyone was expecting it. They were excited about it. But whenever they made this. Uh, right. whenever they, I guess, told people that they were going to be profitable this quarter, fuel prices were 50% of what they are today, right? And as we all know, fuel goes a lot into some of the fixed costs uh, with, with airlines. Big input. Yep. And, and obviously, I think Michael Boyd will definitely be able to add some color uh, to this as well later um, in, this, in this presentation. But JetBlue, they they just weren't they just weren't as lucky, right? So what 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 they will be looking for though is profitability in the next quarter. They're saying, hey, we're we're going to figure out how we can optimize cost. We're going obviously we're going to you know look at these fuel costs, see what's going on. But I think I even read somewhere that their cost per seat increased some fifteen to seventeen percent even after you uh, kind of even out the fuel cost variability there. So. I'm not positive, but to me, what's interesting about JetBlue, and I think a lot of people have thought about this, is what's going on between JetBlue, Frontier, Spirit Airlines. Like, There's been a lot of chatter here and there. I think the vote was just shut down between Spirit Airlines and Frontier. Frontier, So is JetBlue next? I don't know. We'll see.
0: So I was actually, go ahead and chart off, Josh. I was talking to, uh, there, there's a great video interview from a few weeks ago that's on Seeking Alpha with Kristen uh, Muth Jr., uh, who's from Sifty in the World, Seeking Alpha Marketplace. And I asked him about, he, he's very much into ARB investing, right? And he's following deals like this, the mergers and the acquisitions. And he, we I asked him specifically about JetBlue versus Frontier with the deal with Spirit. And what he kind of told me breaking it down was, um, you know, Spirit wanted to Buddy, buddy with Frontier. It seems like the management may have had a little friend action across the companies, Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. why they were trying to help each other out. Um, He told me straight up, though, he was like, JetBlue makes more sense. He's like, they're going to become the fifth largest carrier. And as an investor, we shouldn't care if they get along or not. That's for them to figure out because at the end of the day, they answer the shareholders, right? So now you have JetBlue stepping in, taking the win although Spirit tried to push it off to the very last moment because I think the management over there is a little worried now. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously with gas prices, oil prices also, and I think we're going to touch on this more as we continue with your next one, um, is we're coming out of the summer months, right? Mm -hmm. Like the demand Mm -hmm. and the travel was so built up. And so this was like prime time for airlines and with JetBlue, not really being a business oriented airline, it'll be interesting to see what happens here, but let's move on to the next one. What you got?
1: Last and final one, talk about Airbnb, right? I'm over here spending an arm and a leg on Airbnb on my phone. I'm over here going on little vacations. I'm going on little business trips. I'm always checking Airbnb first. I was surprised to see after earnings, Airbnb stock fell. I think it was 10% starting the day, somewhere in that range, maybe maybe kind of lifted up to about 7%. But, you know stock was down after their earnings. Um, despite it being the most profitable quarter of all time, we had 2.1 billion dollars in revenue, 379 million in profits and 795. say that again, 795 million dollars in free cash flow. Crazy mm-hmm. and they guided to the highest quarterly revenue in history ever for next quarter being Q3. So why do they trade down 10, six, seven percent? Hard to say. It looks like we're seeing about five percent here um, over the last uh, little bit. But I think, like, I don't know if you're able to zoom out there. But if you look at, you know, like the last, I pull up their stock here with you. I think it might have been the last month. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Excuse me. We don't have it, Josh. We, you can go ahead, and chart off. As we trade into uh, the earnings, Airbnb stock, yeah, last month, Airbnb stock uh, traded up thirty percent right into the print. So I think it was a lot of high anticipation. I feel like investors are really excited to see something cool. And as they well, you know, should have, we saw a lot of great things, right? Uh, most profitable quarter, tons of revenue, tons of revenue next quarter, like that's great. Um, but yeah, we, we saw 27, 30% there into uh, the last one month uh, for, for Airbnb. So I, uh, I'm excited. I think Airbnb is such a cool company. I'm, I'm so pumped for them. And uh, I guess we'll uh, see what happens.
0: So you're so. Let me ask you, Austin. You're you're an Airbnb guy, not a VRBO guy.
1: I've never used VRBO in my life. Mm, okay. Never. Okay. See, the so thing with Airbnb though that gets me excited is, well, it's it's kind of a trade-off, and we're going to see this on Twitter as people talk about Airbnb, but. Call it maybe two years ago, three years ago, back in 18 and 19, Airbnb was the coolest thing ever. You had so much flexibility. They had little coffee machines. You were staying at someone's house or their little cottage. Like that's so much fun. And now, as we kind of fast forward to the Airbnb arbitrage, we see these, you know, private equity investors come in. They got the little Nashville Airbnb homes that they own 19 of, like it turns into a more commoditized business. And it's more like a, you know, we have house rules now. We're not going to give you all the cool, you know, amenities that you might get at a hotel. So it's really a trade off as to like what kind of experience you want. But in my opinion, Airbnb is what I prefer. I love the platform and I've never had a bad experience on it. And uh, it's really cool to see them print nearly $800 million of free cash flow in one quarter, uh, especially after, I'm, I'm sure you saw with Brian Chesky, uh, Wall Street Journal did a whole you know, deep dive into how he completely flipped his business during the pandemic. So good for him for pulling him out of this.
0: Man, this is crazy. Do you ever uh, worry about any potential regulation coming down the pipe for this?
1: Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You see that here in Nashville already. I think that's already happening in Atlanta, um, most definitely. But I think at the end of the day, like Airbnb is much more than just a come stay at our home type company. I think it's, I mean, you've got experiences uh, and and this is international, right? I, I, I would be very surprised if we see regulation at scale across the world versus just in a more concentrated city to city type vibe here in the United States.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Let's check out the revisions real quick. I mean, obviously, so in the last three months, they've had six up revisions for EPS, 33 up revisions of revenue. I mean, it's just, I think this mainly, the revenue up revisions, doesn't it have to come from just like, people think that they were going to come out of COVID and maybe take a little bit longer than normal to get back up to speed. Um, I don't know, man. It seems like this company is just kind of digging their heels into the the firm belief that, you know, recession avoided. People are going to continue to travel and no one wants to stay in a hotel anymore. So it sounds like you're trying to do a pair trade, you long Airbnb and, and short a hotel ETF. What do you think of that?
1: Um, Honestly, I don't know if I'm ready to short hotels. I, I think mm. though, at the end of the day, like this, I think Airbnb is more of a, a play on the innovation of, of travel, the, I mean, and we're going to talk about here with that with Uber uh, specifically, but I think that people are tired of the traditional, if it's taxis, if it's hotels, if it's, you know, whatever that is. Like, I I think this is like, people are just so more excited to have a better experience, a different experience. If that is more expensive, even cleaning fees, right. That's, that's certainly a meme at this point. Um, I just, I just think Airbnb's ed. I'm just so excited for the company.
0: Yeah. That's incredible. Um, everybody that's joining us in today, why don't you go ahead and leave a little, uh, little answer in the chat for us. Do you personally use Airbnb or do you go when you travel and stay at hotels or what, what do you do? I'm just kind of curious. You guys can all jump in the chat and, uh, leave that for everyone. Um, let's go ahead and, and move on though. While they're doing that. Uh, let's discuss Uber. Let's,
1: let's do discuss it. Yeah. Uber. So- do you want
0: do you want to set this little segment up for uh- us?
1: I'll set the stage, man. So um, you know, for those, uh, for those of you all hanging out with us, you know, we're going to switch things up. Uh, this segment of the show was normally like we both bring a top item of each week, and we're not going to change it to we both bring um, a, a deep dive into a company that we're both very familiar with. And that company that we're going to be walking through you all through, um, into is, is Uber, right? So Uber reported their Q2 earnings yesterday morning before the market opened. The market loved it. Shares ended the day trading up nearly 20%. They're up another 4% today. So let's walk through why that happened from my perspective. So how I'm seeing it is like, I mean, let's all be real here. Uber has been this like, yeah, we'll eventually be profitable company for years. And they finally... You no, know, did they finally report a profit? No, but they did report positive adjusted EBITDA for the first time of 382 million on more than eight billion dollars in revenue, which helped them print 382 million in free cash flow. The first, uh, excuse me, the free cash flow is the first time the company ever shared a positive free cash flow uh, report. So I think that's what's got people really excited. Is Uber finally able to, you know, move toward profitability? We saw on in their investor day they want to hit five billion by 2024 in adjusted EBITDA, but all those different things. We'll get into that. But I think this was one of the real turning of the tides, saying like the markets finally beginning to think—at least that's what the stock price is telling us—that Uber has a chance to be profitable and, and print some free cash flow. So. Leaning back into some of the um, data here, the company generated twenty nine point one billion dollars in bookings during the quarter, which puts them at about one hundred sixteen billion dollars in, in an annual run rate. So as we head into a potential recession, I don't know how this might stay up, you know, stay up the above this hundred sixteen range. We'll have to see. But their mobility business, the rides business, was thirteen point four billion of that uh, of that revenue that that they had. Uh, or I'm sorry, of the uh, I think that was right. Um, yeah, thirteen
0: point anyway. four billion up fifty five percent year over year.
1: Got it. Cool. Um, thank you. And uh, but the best part, right? <clears throat> the best part, in my opinion, is we always know you know the stock markets forward looking. The stock market is over here saying, "Hold on, guys! Did Uber just tell us that for the next quarter they're looking at thirty billion dollars in bookings?" with, with, with a460 million dollar guidance to adjusted EBITDA, that's crazy. So that's what's got me excited about Uber uh, specifically. I think that's what the market's really pumped for is not only did Uber have a good quarter that was you know prop- profitable, free cash flow, whatever you want to call it for the first time, but they said, hey guys, we're gonna do it again next quarter, right? Hop on the, the train, the Uber train because we're rolling baby. Um, so, yeah, what do, you, what do you think about all this, Daniel? Is, is Uber finally kind of turning this curve? Are they, are they flipping cash flow positive for ever now? I mean, it, or, or actually, I do want to mention before we jump into all this, if you think about free cash flow and how all this kind of you back into that number, um, stock-based compensation for the quarter was $470 million, right? So I think it's very important to not ignore that right? Sure, yeah. they were free cash flow positive, but that's a massive non-cash expense that you can't really sustain. What are, you, what are your thoughts?
0: Man, I've got so many thoughts. Um, obviously, everyone, this, these are our opinions. I got to ask you, Austin, before I answer that. I mean, are you thinking that this... Are you bullish on this? Are, is this a buy? Is this a strong buy? Is, I mean, what, are, what is the overall tone of what you oh,
1: feel about Uber? Gosh. So today... You're buying Uber for about ten times, eleven times, twenty twenty four adjusted EBITDA, right? Their investor day said they're um, they're guiding to about five billion in twenty twenty four adjusted EBITDA, assuming everything moves in the right direction, and we don't see any sort of massive move down again. There's no like looming recession, or stagnation, like we're not seeing that. Like, will Uber thrive during during a recession? Perhaps will people you know continue to Uber everywhere during a recession? Maybe. Like, I don't know about all that. We're also seeing like an auto loan bubble happening behind the scenes, so maybe that has something to do with all this. But you know, do I like Uber? Do I want to buy the stock? What do I think about this? I like now that Uber is free cash flow positive, right? I think that's awesome. Um, you know, they guided to this four hundred seventy million dollars. I'm sorry, I, I think it was four hundred and sixty million, and um, adjusted to next quarter. But again, back to that four hundred seventy million dollar stock based compensation. Um, I don't know how sustainable that is. And even if you're able to kind of sustain that and keep on rocking and rolling, and, and Uber is able to hit that five billion dollars in adjusted EBITDA, which will likely print a few billion in, in free cash flow. You kind of back into a market rate multiple of that. I mean, you're looking at maybe 35 to 40 dollars a share. like I think I just saw Uber on screen around 31 or 32. I think there's a lot that has to go right for Uber to hit that. 35 40 range uh by 2024 and i think there're too many variables to to bet the farm on that I, I, on that right now daniel um you know I, I like the stock i think it's i think it's okay i just think there's a lot in the air that has to happen that has to check the box everything needs to like the stars need to align for all this to happen and i don't know if we're in environment for all the stars to align
0: yeah all right so i asked you all of that cuz i i wanted you to have your uh your take because i've i'm so opinionated about this company right? So okay. as a couple of recaps, right? Obviously, stock compensation, that could be a downfall. Look at Coinbase, look at the other companies that are just pushing out so much stock compensation to their employees. And you're not going to make the employees happy that way, right? You got to deliver. And that's where I kind of, I look at the adjusted EBITDA, right? That was the big thing that everybody's talking about. Beat by a hundred million on adjusted EBITDA. Okay, that's EBITDA. You're talking about a growth company. I get that. But the free cash flow and finding real value in this company is what we want to see, right? And we're coming out of the summer months, as I mentioned. Everybody's been traveling. This was the time for them to make money if they were going to make money. Have we seen business travel come back? I mean, that's I Uber all the time when I go to the airport, but I'm not traveling as much as I did pre-pandemic because I don't have to anymore, right? The world has evolved. The the entire thing has evolved and changed. And as you mentioned... um, Mobility accounted for 13.4 billion. Sure, up 55% year over year. We're talking about 2021, where COVID was still an issue and people were not out and about like they are this year. Get that. Delivery rose 7% year over year to 13.9 billion. So more than the actual mobility, right? And that's where they have a huge opportunity. But if they can't deliver on that, if their delivery charges are too high, I don't see that continuing to bring in a high amount of revenue. And also, you're talking about competing against Lyft, right? Josh, go ahead and throw up that Lyft chart I sent over your way. I mean, Lyft is such a smaller company. They weren't the first mover. They don't have first mover advantage. They were guiding... I don't know if you remember this. They were guiding that they were going to be free cash flow... or the, Yeah, free cash flow positive, I think, by this year. And then they had to scale back on that during COVID. I mean, they just completely played it all wrong. And I think... Uber and Lyft and all these companies still have a huge problem when it comes to potential legislation about treating these people versus employees, Mm -hmm. versus independent contractors in that gray area, trying to figure it out. All right, go ahead and take that uh, chart off, Josh. Also, I don't know if you noticed, Quant had a strong sell on Lyft, also something to keep in mind, right? So if Uber didn't have the Uber Eats business and they didn't get into delivery of products, I mean, think about where this company would be today it'd probably be similar to all the other risk assets that we're seeing. So going forward, so another thing I want to talk on, actually, uh, Dara, the CEO, was on CNBC Post earnings yesterday, um, talking about you know spinning out all these things. And I, One of his quotes was, he said, and I laughed when I heard him say this, he said, we're the ultimate service company. And I wanted to be the first one to throw a trash can. I don't think that's true. You are not the ultimate service company. I am sorry. I love what you have done. I love the service you provide. But there are so many other industries and so many other companies that provide more service to the consumer than what they're doing. I love how they're trying to turn the ship around. But with free cash flow, I mean, we're going into the second half of the year where people aren't going to be traveling because kids are going back to school, right? It's not going to be the same level that it was last quarter all the way up until the end of July, right? So or into June. Sorry. So it's like, what do you do now? Maybe you had July as a good month. You know, I don't know, but I'm kind of worried as we go into August and September, if they can truly deliver, I'm not saying this is a a buy on the stock. I'm not saying it's a sell at this moment. I'm I'm saying hold and wait. You know, that's my opinion is just try to see like, let's see what next quarter brings. I might be wrong. I very well might be wrong. And I hope I hope I'm wrong. But also it's like, you have to get new drivers. Did you hear about the initiatives? They're trying to show people routes and how much money they're gonna make before yeah, they get. Yeah, like, I've seen that. Mm-hmm. There that signs to me that they're struggling and they're losing drivers because of the frustration of that. And also, drivers are still the ones having to take care of their own vehicles. And we're talking about the auto loans and everything else, right? Like there is a lot that it's like the Fed trying to create a soft landing. They're like, Yeah, we have the ability to potentially create a soft landing. But there's a lot of factors that are outside of our control that have to land specifically perfect in order for this to happen, and I think Uber's kind of in the
1: same boat. 100%, man, I'm right there with you, right? There's a lot of things that are sort of pushing against Uber right now, right? They're making some wacky decisions, right? Think about nationwide shipping. I'm sure you saw that in their app. I actually made a TikTok video about it. You can go get waffles um, from you know New York City, or, or I guess New York City pizza sent out to me here in Nashville. What the hell is that for? right? I think in order to sustain this profitability across the board, Uber uh, may need their subscription service, Uber One, to gain a lot more traction, improve some free cash flow uh, projections and some some of that subscription revenue. That's great, right? Amazon decided to partner with their competitor Grubhub. That sucks. That Mm -hmm. sucks, right? Uh, Mix this with, you know, talk about Lyft. They're all over the place. Who knows what Lyft's going to do? But then you think about Blacklane now coming in to try and take the Uber Black business. I mean, to your point of being this ultimate service company, there are so many different companies who offer similar services. And sure, maybe they were able to pull several of them together, but will they be able to continue that, scale that, and be profitable? That's a lot of variables, man. It's a lot of variables. I'm sort of on your boat here. It's like, I'm not over here betting the farm on Uber, but I, I'm, I'm kind of in this cautiously optimistic, right? I want them to make it. I use Uber probably three to four times a month. I would hate if Uber or something happened to them. Um, I don't not know, to, I not to we'll mention, to
0: I mean, this, think about the drivers. I don't know if you've seen this. Obviously, you go to the airport, you get off the plane, you're like, I need to get an Uber and a Lyft. Sure. Right? You check both apps as a consumer. And then also, the drivers are on both apps apps they are really it's like when you come down to which company is going to win in this space it's who can retain the drivers now before we move on we got to keep the show going obviously we could talk about this all day but i want to get to michael boyd here in a second but i wanted to, to just review some of the things that we see coming through the chat larry thanks for joining us today larry says i am an airbnb super host and a vrbo top host interestingly I receive more than double my bookings from VRBO. No
1: way, Larry! That's so yeah. cool. I need to. Okay, that's interesting. So between you and I, Larry, and I guess all the other people watching, is I just got a investment property here in Nashville to Airbnb, but I think now I might have just got this investment property to VRBO it. That's uh, that's exciting. Good plug,
0: yeah. And then also we have people joining from YouTube. Sorry, it's not working on YouTube today, but thanks for tuning in and joining us. Also, Austin, we have a question coming in. I think everybody needs to hear about Austin. When does your work? When is it going to be on Seeking Alpha?
1: Do Work's going to be on to Seeking Alpha in October, right? I'm I'm working on you know really showing my I guess showing the audiences really getting ingrained here in the Seeking Alpha ecosystem. We're talking to Michael Boyd. We're talking to Daniel Snyder. We're talking to all the awesome fun. Uh, marketplace writers. Uh, As you guys know, I've got a little newsletter on Substack, but all that awesome written work and analysis and even videos are going to be inside the Seeking Alpha ecosystem in October. So be ready for that. I'm super pumped, super excited, and I can't wait to use the tools and resources that Seeking Alpha provides to us awesome marketplace um, leaders uh, to, to absolutely crush it in their ecosystem. So I'm pumped and I hope all of you guys join me over there.
0: Yeah, man. Y'all haven't seen anything else, uh, seen anything yet. Um, I'm getting too excited, right? I'm stumbling my words. I'm getting too excited. <laughs> We're half an hour in. We need to shut up. We need to bring the man, the myth, the legend, into the conversation. Bring him in. Let's do it. Michael Boyd, I would love for you to join us right now. I know you're there. We got some questions for you. Obviously, everyone, this is Michael Boyd. He is a part of Energy Investing Authority on Seeking Alpha, you can find a Seeking Alpha marketplace service. I mean, this guy is the best of the best. I'm sorry, but you are the powerhouse. I meant it. It's not just a joke. <laughs> You're amazing. Um, let's go ahead and just have you start off real quick. Give a, a brief background of how you got started, where you are, and um, and then I, we've got some questions for you.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I've been in the financial space for, for quite a long time now. I uh, worked as an investment advisor uh, back in 2008 out of the Great Recession. Uh, moved to an investment bank after a couple of years, did a lot of different things there, traded uh, structured finance products, derivatives, uh, did some internal audit stuff for a while and uh, started writing it on Seeking Alpha in 2014 and then uh, started focusing on the oil and gas space uh, probably in 2017 or 18 more specifically, just because there's a lot of uh, trashy research out there, especially on the public side for oil and gas. And it's a unique space. And I think it's definitely an area of the market where uh, people need a little bit more help than, uh, than some other areas. So uh, just trying to fill a little bit of a hole there and uh, been working in that space ever since. Yeah, no kidding. All
0: right. So we're going to dive right in. Also, before we get started, I want to remind everybody that's tuning in, you can ask Michael questions. So as we're talking, get into the chat box. If you have a question, I want to ask him your question, even though I could ask him questions all day. So let's dive in. Um, obviously I was looking today on AAA about gas prices, right? It's on the top of everybody's mind. We've been talking about it for weeks. We've been talking about it for months today. Crude oil is around 91 and a half. Um, I think I saw AAA gas prices on national average was 416 or 421, somewhere around there. Where are we going from here, man? Can you just give us the real rundown?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, we were talking about this a couple months ago. I was like, be patient, you know, forward curve on oil and refined products. And things are going to slowly taper down. I think we've seen uh, I think maybe like 50 running consecutive days of uh, national averages coming down. So relief is on the way for consumers there. So it's, things are starting to come down. That's going to start to uh, flatline a little bit. You won't see as much savings a, a couple of months from now as you did if you were looking back where you were paying in, in March or April. But uh, things are definitely on, on the mend and a little bit better off. Uh, but that doesn't really mean that... Uh, Uh, I don't think consumers are going to be happy because, you know, refined product prices are still well above five and 10 year averages looking out for the next couple of years. So, you know, the refiners are going to be making plenty of money over the next couple of years. and, uh, And unfortunately, that's probably going to become at the expense of consumers a little bit
1: very cool very cool yeah i don't it's kind of a meme at this point but i feel like every other day i'm seeing the white house talk about how gas prices are falling at record paces and we're saving <laughs> everyone's all this money and i'm just like what's going on um anyway so I, next question here and this is more of like a energy question in general not specifically gasoline but during COVID specifically there was a dramatic rise in thematic investing specifically with millennials and I'd love right. to hear your thoughts about investing in like green energy right is is it is it real is it fake is it like a new age way of like what's going on with green energy and if someone maybe wanted to begin investing in green energy what are some I'm not I'm not going to make you name any companies here but what are some ways that they could begin doing that
2: Yeah I mean there's definitely I mean what I tell people you know I've focused on fossil fuels for for quite a long time but at the end of the day as investors you know, at least for me, I try to be, I don't try to toe any political line there, right? If, if I view a company as having a, a, a path to making money, then I'm happy to be there and be along for the ride, right? I mean, It's definitely a very highly capitalistic view, but I think that's probably the best way uh, to right position there with yourself. You. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's plenty of ways to position thematically in green energy, um, you know, especially if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act and everything like that, that's been coming out over the past, you know, week or two, There's plenty of opportunity in there. You know, a lot of government support goes a long way, and a lot of these kind of like nascent, kind of like early stage, uh, green energy businesses. Um, I personally, I think residential solar is a really interesting spot to be. Um, You know, if you look at, uh, I think one of the big themes I think for uh, traditional utilities, right, is grid underinvestment for so long. Right, they've been pouring so much money into investing in solar and wind development, but that's come at the expense of investing in like power lines, transformers, that kind of thing. So those things are on the way, they have to make those investments, especially if you're thinking about, you know, electric vehicle charging and things like that, as you think, you know, kilowatt per hour usage for every every home is going to go up over time, and then all the costs that have to go and be invested into the grid. Uh, And then you have residential solar that, you know, at least, you know, things might change on the regulatory side, but they kind of uh, skip over that a little bit by having much lower utility bills. So it's a little bit harder utilities that kind of passes on to residential solar customers. Um, I think like any other business, there's some, you know, growing pains in there. They've had issues with labor. You see some some poor headlines out there where maybe some of the sales staff isn't well trained or some of the installations aren't, aren't up to par. But, you know, I think it's a, it's a really interesting business model. And at least for me, there's actually a lot of cash flow visibility there because uh, most of those uh, solar companies are kind of taking these uh you know they're kind of funding it for the consumer right so you go to like a company like sunrun or someone like this right you say right uh, right hey i want to i want to have a solar installation on my house right they'll pay it for you and they'll install it for you you reap all the savings as a consumer utility bills but they get all the government incentives and grants and they kind of lock you into a lower utility rate than, than what you're paying now so then you you know you kind of uh they take those, you know, just this is like 2008 vibes all over again, right? Solar asset-backed securities are, are a big thing now. So they take all those solar leases, they kind of bundle them up into a structured product and set it out there and sell it, right? And that's a, it's a very low cost of capital for, uh, you know, especially in an industry that's so kind of like early stage like this. So it's, it's, an, it's an interesting model for sure. And uh, I guess another one, too, would be um, I really like the uh, kind of biofuel space, too. So like renewable diesel, if you think about things like sustainable aviation fuel, you know, we we're talking about JetBlue and the, those kind of airlines earlier, right? You know, that's, a, that's an industry that's really trying to push to try and uh, check the box on, uh, you know, lower greenhouse gas emissions. And unfortunately, if you look at, you know, battery kind of power uh, and those kind of things, it just doesn't function with the, with the airline model. So Um, you know, something like sustainable aviation fuel made with like, you know, waste, you know, cooking oil from your local McDonald's. Right. That's a way to be green, but then still have this kind of like air travel dynamic going on.
0: Yeah. Good points. Actually, I was going to bring that up as well, just because I remember Elon Musk talking about it like a while back about how the jets and the planes, you. You can't run that on renewable energy yet. Maybe we'll get yeah. something eventually. I mean, but- you
2: start—you're starting to see some headlines where you know they're—they're they're starting to put like some like you know tiny little planes. It's just maybe one or two passengers. They're starting to kind of get them up in the air. But there's a big difference between that and a uh, you know like a commercial airline. Yeah, or, yeah,
0: or something like max, that, right? Yeah, all so. Those. Exactly. So I wanted—I wanted—I love this because this was my question I was going to ask you anyway. But we—we we had one of our uh, <laughs> Somebody tuning in and ask this question. Um, we want your take. How is the fuel industry for vehicles looking in the next 10 years, in your opinion?
2: Uh, Demand-wise, I mean, I think you're going to start to see, um, uh, I mean, if you're thinking on the gasoline side, I think you're going to start to see some like, you know, mild declines. I think low single digits per annum over time. I think you're already starting to see some signs of demand destruction right now, right? If you think about kind of recessionary kind of like impacts and also the impact of higher prices, I think over the past few weeks, you kind of jump between like things. Uh gasoline demand is down between three and eight percent versus two thousand twenty one right which is a which should be a pretty easy comp if you think about it, right You're still kind of having some kind of lift coming off of like uh, covid and everything like that so there's there's definitely some underlying structural weakness in refined products uh specifically gasoline less so on the diesel side um so yeah, I think you're gonna start to see the uh baseline kind of made here and then if you think about like two thousand twenty two to two thousand and thirty I think you're gonna start to see like you know, one to three and a half percent declines each year. So that's definitely going to be a factor when you think about, uh, especially if you investments in refiners or any anything like that.
0: Well, so I wanted to take a second um, just for anybody that doesn't know, can you walk us through right now? What is the specific issue with the refining capacity? Because that seems to be
2: coming up in conversation yeah, this is over a, and over again. Yeah, this is a big thing, right? So if you go back to like 2016 versus now we're down a little bit, a little bit of over a million barrels per day of refining capacity in the United States, um, half of that roughly has just been taken straight offline, right? So these things were they were unprofitable, you know, crack spreads were terrible from 2018 to 2020. So all of that was taken offline. They were, it was just structurally to not uh, performing. And then the other half was converted to renewable diesel, right? So, you know, these refiners saw there and, you know, they have obligations uh, on the blending side with, you know, on ethanol or renewable diesel to try and avoid having to buy, you know, re, you know, like RINs in the open market to kind of offset their uh, uh, their expenses on the on the federal side. So they decided to convert existing uh, fossil fuel capacity to renewable diesel. So on both of those things, you can't reverse that, right? If it's a uh, refinery is shut and it's been mothballed for a year or two, you can't just ramp that back up online. There's And they usually go in there, they kind of scrap all the equipment out of there. There's a lot of money that would have to be invested back into it to kind of get it back going. And then on their new lethal side, you know, they invested all that money into con- conversion and then they're not going to undo that at this point. So you have this kind of structural shortfall that's taken place on the US side. And then if you look to Europe where... Uh, European refineries have been in an awful position, if you think about, you know, we've talked about, you know, European gas prices for uh, several times on on some of these things before. So um, natural gas is a big expense for refineries. So there, your your US refiners have now have a structural uh, profit advantage versus European refiners. So you're starting to see a lot of exports, you know, go from the US American shores across the way to Europe, and they need the help there right now, especially with everything that's going on with with Russia, right? Because Russia was a big source of (coughs) refined product exports to Europe. So that's a big tough thing for the Biden administration right now, because you've seen some kind of calls to kind of try and cap, you know, refined product exports, but that would come at the expense of European relations at a time when US euro relations are extremely important.
1: So I'm gonna embarrass myself right now. Um, Let's not (laughs) laugh at me while I say this, but I'm not very deep into energy, right? I I I don't really have a lot of exposure to it in my portfolio, and I would imagine that a lot of people my age, right in our mid to late twenties, might not understand energy as well as certainly folks like you, Michael. Um, And so with you know I'm very into technology, cybersecurity, like like very different sectors. So as someone who wants to have exposure to energy in their portfolio, where would you kind of pinpoint that sweet spot of allocation? Are we thinking perhaps 5 to 10% or is energy that, I mean, and, and if that's the case, is it Exxon? Is it, I mean, is it, is it perhaps an ETF that you recommend? How could I begin to expose myself to the energy sector in a very responsible way, knowing that to your point, it's a, it's a very important, um, you know, sector to have exposure to?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you've definitely seen that over the years, right? If you think about the uh, energy sector as a percentage of the S&P 500, I think that was as low as
1: uh, exactly
2: dip below 2% at one point, right? So it, it almost faded into nothing this, there for a while. I think we're starting to creep back up a little bit. And I think just especially traders on the momentum side have started to see a little bit more interest kind of come back into energy. But uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's a tough sector uh, to kind of like wrap your, wrap your head around, especially if you're thinking about something like, you know, on the upstream side, right? So if you're looking at like the producers themselves and thinking about like well results and, you know, oh, and, 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 and on the cost side. So I think if you're going to dip your toe into the space, I think the super majors are really a great place to do it. You know the good thing there is, you know, most of them have pretty broad exposure, right? So if you think about Exxon, they have a big chemicals business. They have, you know, refineries throughout the Gulf Coast, and they're one of the largest refiners in the United States. They have upstream production, so they're producing, you know, in Texas and uh, and uh, in the Midwest, and then they also have, you know, offshore operations in the Gulf of Mexico and in internationally, right? So you're getting very like broad exposure to a lot of different themes within energy. You're not necessarily taking. uh, because the, the more niche you go, the more of a I guess a uh, a levered bet you're taking, right? So if you're looking at like just a, a natural gas producer in the in in the Haynesville, for instance, then you're you're very, it's a much different exposure than if you're at with a, a a major that has all this exposure throughout the world. Um, and I think it's it's just great on the value side, especially if you're a, if you're a big tech investor, right? Generally, you know, obviously we saw a lot of correlation when, you know, the, we had these recessionary spheres, right? You know, everything kind of like falls off a cliff when everybody thinks, you know, recession is around the corner, but, you know, generally with the rest of the market, usually when tech goes up, energy is down and vice versa. So if you're uh, uh, the type of uh, younger investor where you open your portfolio every day and you see these wild swings and it gives you heart palpitations and you have problems sleeping at night, you know, I think uh, energy exposure is a good way to kind of balance out and kind of risk profile in your portfolio and you, you know, I think you'll sleep a little bit better with a little bit less volatility day to day.
1: Got it. it. And Daniel, that. actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in with yeah. another question that just came to mind to me. Um, REITs, energy REITs, walk me through what that means, how they make money, what all this comes together like like what 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 maybe uh perhaps two or three examples of, of energy reits you might have your eye on michael
2: yeah i mean if you're thinking like on the uh, on the uh, the kind of like the partnership side if you're thinking like royalty trusts and things like that i mean the good thing there is uh if you're looking at like royalties or any sort of income stream like that there's right, things right. that have like uh, a lot of common themes with with reits so it's usually kind of like income based you get your you know now I think yields are a little higher. Usually you're thinking like five to 8% kind of like dividend payouts and, and that kind of thing. Right. The good thing there um, is most of those, they just take, you know, the way they work is they own acreage. And then there's a producer comes in and says, Hey, I want to drill here. And are like, yeah, we'll let you drill here. But you give us a share of whatever you produce. Right. So they usually take some percentage of royalty off the top, you know, it might be like two, four, 10, 20%. It just depends on where you are in the United States. Uh, But the good thing there is, you know, that's insulated from the cost side, right? In this kind of like inflationary environment, one of the big things going on in upstream drilling right now, just like it is everywhere else, is costs are going up everywhere, right? There's a shortage of of labor, you know, on the drilling rig side. Equipment is short because we were in this low production environment for a long time. And now we're trying to incrementally grow U.S. production again. Um, And there's a lot of like supply side chain kind of issues there present as well. If you're in a royalty trust, you don't care what your producer is going through you're just getting a cut of whatever oil or gas they produce you're just taking the 10 totally. off the top and if their costs are up 10 15 20 percent you don't care so that, i mean i think that's a great way uh to kind of play the space right now um there are a few out there um uh, one of my favorite upstream producers um is diamondback the ticker is fang f-a-n-g yep. and they have a uh a uh, little royalty trust company that they have uh, that trades and that's uh, um, Viper Energy Partners, so V-N-O-M. And that's one of the largest kind of like capitalization kind of companies in the royalty space. Um, uh, most of their acreage, I think uh, about 65 or 70% is, uh, was dropped down basically. So, you know, Diamondback sold it to this uh, daughter company. Uh, and then they lease it back, right? Um, so that's all high quality acreage, the break evens there uh, on, on a, you know, oil production basis are in the low $30 per barrel. So you don't really have to worry about, you know, oil going from 120 to 90, because, you know, it's a break even is in the low 30s, you know, they're going to produce there regardless. Um, and there's a lot of inventory there. So I think it's, uh, I think the public presentations put it at like 15 to 20 years of, of inventory and drilling there. So if you can kind of pull off uh, you know, kind of like, I think now at this point, it's probably like high single digits to low team kind of yield there because they distribute about, uh, you know, 100% of like their free cash flow out to to, to shareholders, right? Um, if uh, if oil prices remain high over the next, you know, 15, 20 years, that's going to more than pay for itself. So,
0: Michael, I, I want to jump it. in here. Uh, also love that take on the energy sector. That was great. I um, wanted to challenge you, though, because I, I remember just reading this article that came across. Um, the Goldman Sachs analyst, commodity analyst, Jeff Curry, uh, came out, I think it was Monday and reiterated his prediction that Brent Crude is going to reach $130 a barrel. Um, I mean, obviously we just talked about the price coming yeah. from 120 back down to the nineties. Uh, just kind of curious if you might be able to consolidate what your thoughts are on the take. Yeah. I mean, are we gonna see the rip back to the upside? Yeah, I've
2: been, you know, I've been talking about this with my uh, with my marketplace guys for a while, right? I mean, the thing with global oil, right? You know, this is a very inelastic product. So, you know, oil was in the tank when we were uh, oversupply by a couple million barrels per day, and then oil went through the moon when we were up a couple. You know, we were short a couple million barrels per day. That's just a couple percentage of overall demand. If you think it, usually you kind of kind of place demand at like 100 million barrels per day globally, right? So this is just a couple percent swings. That's the difference between. The market saying oil is trash it's worth $40 a barrel and oil is awesome it's worth $140 a barrel so there's this tiny little percentage and then you know if you follow the news and energy you know every seemingly every week right there's like oh this country has shut in production because you know they had some like terrorists or something kind of come in and blow, in, blow up a pipeline or OPEC has, got, you know, has now moved to increased production so now more barrels are going to be hitting the market then you think about you know, Russian barrels and, you know, are those hitting the market and, you know, are we going to have an Iran deal to kind of bring those barrels back on the market? There's all this noise in the supply side. And to me, it's like, if you're on the macro side, there's like this puzzle and you're trying to put all these pieces together. And then after a week, someone comes in and just slaps your puzzle off the desk and says, Hey, you know, this is, you know, you have to start over because there's new information there. So it's, it's extremely difficult. I feel like, uh, You know, on the macro side, I feel like people put so much time and effort into trying to predict, um, you know, oil prices where there's just so many independent actors and so many variables in place. You know, you know, at least for me to save my sanity, I tend to take like, you know, forward strips. So this is this is market consensus. So you have Goldman Sachs on one side that's super bullish. And then you have Citi on the other that tends to be on the bearish side for oil forecasts. You have all these people kind of like involved in these markets and they're placing their bets in the forward pricing market for oil. And, you know, that forms your consensus. So I'm not trying to take a big structural bet either way. I'm not trying to say, hey, the market's wrong, oil is going to this or hey, you know, you know, the opposite. I rarely do that. I kind of take market consensus and apply that to companies and say, hey, giving prevailing views on what everyone thinks, This is what earnings are going to be. This is what the cash flow is going to be. This is how this company is going to reinvest that money. Is it going to go to shareholders? Is it going to be reinvested back into the business? That kind of thing. Yeah. And you do a great job
0: of that. And I really mean that. I mean, obviously, uh, full disclosure for everybody, I am a shareholder in ExxonMobil. And so I I follow the oil space pretty closely because I want to make sure we're headed in the right direction. Um, Wanted to get this question. I'm sorry if I pronounce your name wrong, but Sloemi, I think is uh, who's tuning in asking questions. Um, They want to know what are a few big growth energy stocks that you would recommend buying right now in this time?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some smaller kind of like upstream producers that are looking to grow production. Um, I think that's a little bit more prevalent in Canada. If you're willing to go shopping uh, across the border a little bit in general, Canada has a little bit more kind of like aggressive growth growth profile going forward in some of its names. So there's a lot of kind of like, more early stage names in Canada tend to have a little bit, bit of a stronger growth pro- profile. So there's a, uh, um, headwater is, is a big name in Canada that has like some, some brand new acreage, um, out there that they're kind of like investing in and trying to grow like 10, 15, 20% per year over the next couple of years. Um, you know, on the U S side, um, if you're looking to kind of get some exposure to, to growth, it's really all going to be in the Permian basin because, you know, in general, uh, production expectations are expected that, you know, if you look at like older basins like the Bakken or, or something like that, that's kind of like a flat to declining asset. That's where you start to see concerns over, you know, I mean, I feel like we have this discussion like every couple of years with the Bakken, but like it's drilled out. There's not as much inventory there, you know, well performance is starting to decline. So Permian is a relatively new discovery. It's a relatively large discovery. So there's a lot more uh, growth opportunities there to, to be found. And I think uh, even some of the larger producers in the Permian still have kind of that like five to 10% uh, longer term kind of like growth profile kind of baked into production.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. As, uh, so, so if I'm someone who wants to begin dipping their toes and learning more about energy, am I reading earnings reports? Am I reading transcripts? Am I how how am I keeping up with the energy sector in general? Is there a website you recommend? Obviously, they're going to subscribe to you, Michael Boyd, because you're a genius. But <laughs> where where am I going to continue to keep my tabs on what's happening with everything energy?
2: Yeah, I mean, one of my big things that I kind of advocate people to use is to use the resources available to them. So. It, usually if you're trading through a broker, like it might be Charles Schwab, it might be, you know, uh, Bank of America, you know, Merrill or something like that, right? At least you, you tend to have access to kind of like some sort of like sell side research there on some of these companies. So I think that's always a great kind of place to kind of like me because then you're, you're kind of seeing, oh, what is this analyst that, you know, Bank of America is thinking, you know, you know, this, you know, this company reported earnings, this is the things that they talked about. That's a good way to kind of get a perspective on, you know what the market tends to be focusing on at that point, because you know that analyst is talking to all these institutional investors day to day, and they're like, you know, whatever the trend might be in energy, you know, they're aware of what the broader market is looking for, right? So several years ago, it was all growth, growth, growth. You know, all we cared about was how many barrels can we pull out of the ground. We're just gonna like stab holes across the desert in Texas, and you know, whatever crops up, crops up, right? And now it's more kind of focused on like free cash flow, keeping costs down, shareholder returns. So you start to see a lot more focus of that in earnings reports. So I think that's a great way to kind of get a perspective on what the market is looking for. You know, I think at the very least, if you're trying to get started, you do have to have some sort of kind of like background in, uh, in some of the terminology. There are a lot of great resources out there. Um, I always recommend people kind of check out uh, RBN Energy um They have a uh, it's kind of cool, they have a, a free daily blog that they publish. Uh, talking about a specific topic they always write them in a great way they kind of tie it into music and and songs and lyrics and that kind of thing um, so it's really kind of like nice easy coffee reading material in the morning and you kind of get like a deep dive for free into uh, uh, the topic du jour of the day um, and if you do that enough over time I think you kind of get a kind of like a great little kind of like baseline read
1: very wow. cool Sound, yeah. I love it
0: all right, Michael, I got one last question for you. And of course, we saved it for the last because the people want to know, we want to hear the story. What was your worst or your best
2: trade? Um, I, You know, I always kind of point to, oh, I guess I'll start good. Um, you know, uh, one of my better trades of, of the past few years, um, DCP Midstream has been one of my favorite picks for for quite some time. They're uh, located in the uh, the midcontinent. They do natural gas and natural gas processing. Uh, I think in... Uh, I bought a big lug of shares in uh, late March, I think for like $2 and change in in March 2020. And today the stock trades at like 35 and change. You know, they just printed, um, I think this quarter they did $477 million to EBITDA. So I think you annualize that, that was pretty much almost the market cap that it was trading at back then and during the, like the depth of the pandemic. So there's there's a lot of value there, especially on the midstream side, but traditionally thought of as, you know, the more kind of safe space, right, uh, in in energy, Um, you know, on on the bad side, on the poorer side, there's definitely I mean, it's probably I have to go back a few more years, because I feel like at this stage, you know, especially how things performed lately, right, you could just throw a dart at the dartboard. And, you know, energy has probably performed well over over a longer term period. But um, I think one of the bigger mistakes, um, you know, that I've made uh, was on uh, natural gas, I think maybe in like 2016 or 17, I was just way too early into into that idea. Um, i kind of ignored the kind of like associated gas story out of the permian there for a while um and then you know at, at the end of the day you know at the time you know permian oil producers were just producing natural gas they didn't care what they sold it for that was when everybody was just flaring flaring the gas they didn't really care they just had to get, get if they could get it to market they didn't care if they got a penny for it um so the there was a big kind of like supply demand issue at that time in natural gas and uh, i was on the wrong side of that trade and luckily i got out of it without too much blood, but it's definitely kind of like a, a small stain when I kind of
1: look back at my history in the space. So
0: that's all right. We all have them, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I certainly do. <laughs> yeah.
2: The, yeah. The key thing is is to kind of learn from your mistakes, right? You know, as like exactly. when whenever I have a bad trade, you know, I think the, the smart thing to do is kind of like take a look back. I think that's the great thing about writing, you know, and for seeking Alpha, Alpha, Alpha specifically, right? Is you get to look, you know, in words what your thesis was, and then you can kind of look back on it, you know six months, a year, two years down the line, you'd be like, well, I thought this and this is what happened and you kind of clearly see where things went off the rails probably, so. Yeah, fantastic.
0: All right, Michael, we've taken so much of your time. Really appreciate you joining us today. Of course, Obviously, anytime. I'm always happy
2: to come on, come on and chat. We'll
0: have you back on for sure. I know that our, our guests loved it and so do we. So you have a great rest of the day, all right?
2: Yeah, appreciate it. All right.
0: Man, what a guy, huh?
1: Love Good it. Him. I learned so much. I don't, I don't know anything about energy and now I know so much.
0: What a guy. He is totally there. I mean, look, I read his stuff all the time. The guy absolutely crushes it. He's on top of the energy space every single week, every single day, day in, day out. And I love what he just mentioned too about, I mean, really seeking is there because you get to go back and look at the articles that were written beforehand mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. see how the thesis planned out. Um, just want to encourage everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Obviously, I'll tell you that every single time. We love that you're here. We love that you're asking questions, engaging with us. If you have any questions for us, if you have any comments, if you want to tell us that our hair looks good, anything like that
1: reach out to us man
0: <laughs> we're on linkedin we're on twitter austin's over on tiktok austin any last words for today
1: no last words uh fingers crossed and uh we'll we'll, we'll hopefully we'll continue to see green for the rest of the week
0: yeah yeah hopefully i mean who knows bear market rally or the real thing we've got it on bill ba- the, the bulls and the bears on both sides but all right josh we also appreciate you in the back why don't you go ahead and get us on out of here everyone have a great day <music> i <laughs>